Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody uh, from San Francisco, the heart of big tech. Uh, it's Friday, the 13th of May. Not a lucky day, I think, for Twitter, one of the big tech companies, one of our most baronial of big tech barons. Elon Musk now has put the Twitter deal on hold, potentially really undermining the company and perhaps even social media. Meanwhile, uh, the financial markets associated with tech are incredibly unstable. Um, the Wall Street Journal reports today that a trillion dollars of crypto vanished in just six months, in the last six months. We did a show uh, last week um, uh, uh, asking what you would do with a trillion dollars, how it could save the world. Imagine if that trillion dollars of crypto was reinvested in the environment or something a little bit more productive. It's just been washed away in the casino of big tech, but the VCs don't seem to be too bothered. The FT report today that the large venture capitalists are now seeking big what they call big returns with non-fungible tokens, which seems to me another casino-like endeavor. We are increasingly troubled by the bar of big tech. The Nation magazine, for example, suggests rather than boycotting uh, Amazon, we need to hit them where it really hurts. One wonders where hitting Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or any of the other big tech barons, where it really hurts, what that would mean and where we need to hit them. My guest today is in that business of hitting big tech barons. He's the co-author of a book that comes out next month, uh, but he's been generous enough to talk about it today. His co-author, Ariel Ezrachi, uh, will appear on the show next month. And Maurice E. Uh, Stuckey uh, is the co-author of How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation and How to Strike Back. And he's joining me, or us, from Knoxville, Tennessee. Maurice, welcome. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, perhaps you might define uh, what you mean in your book by uh, a big tech baron. Is it anyone in tech or is it just the people who lead the large Silicon Valley companies, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Amazons, even if Amazon aren't formally in Silicon Valley? Sure. When we refer to the big tech barons, we're looking at those that control a critical ecosystem. So the way to think of it is there are the companies that control apps, and if apps are worth millions and platforms are worth billions, then the ecosystems are quasi-sovereigns, and they control several interlocking platforms that attract a lot of individuals and data. I'm curious to whether you would include a company like Airbnb in this as a headline today about the innovation of Airbnb, supposed innovation, wanting wanting them, what they want us to take us as tourists to places that we didn't really know existed. Um, you suggest that big big tech barons are smashing innovation. Would you enjoy, or would you include perhaps secondary companies like Airbnb and Uber in this, or is it just the major platforms, Google, Amazon, Facebook, 
Apple and perhaps Microsoft. Right. It would be those primarily those five in the U.S. And um, because they control, they're they're unique in that they control several interlocking platforms that are really hard to avoid. They're the key gatekeepers for the internet today, or at least for the digital economy today. Um, I've never had Peter Thiel on the show, but it'd be fun to have him. His book, Zero to One, is remarkable. Um, it has over 12,000 ratings on Amazon. He has quite a following and he's a smart guy. His book, his 2014 book, Zero to One, Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future, suggests that it's natural and inevitable for entrepreneurs to want to become monopolists. Is he right? Yeah. I mean, as an empirical matter, it's questionable that firms want to survive they want to add value. When you look at what we refer to as the tech pirates, they at times can't predict how disruptive their technologies will actually be. So I think their first order of business is in order to get their products out there to see how consumers are using and then to scale. Uh, whether or not they all aspire to be monopolies, I don't, I mean, there's no empirical basis for that. We did a show last week with the Wall Street, actually, he's now the New York Times correspondent on Apple, Trip Mickle. He argues in a new book after Steve that Apple has lost its soul. Uh, he believed it had that soul in the C Steve Jobs era. Using the example of Apple, Maurice, um, as the classic big tech baron in the sense that it controls platforms and operating systems, how is... Apple of, of, of all companies smashing innovation. It seems to be a remarkably innovative company. We all carry around iPhones and we, we love using their devices. Surely they're profoundly innovative, a company like Apple. Uh, yes and no. So our thesis is a bit more nuanced. We're not saying that the big tech barons aren't innovative, but it's the nature of innovation that takes place and the value of the innovation and the extent that they stifle disruptive innovation. So for the big tech barons, what we do is we break down innovation along two metrics. One of it is whether or not it's sustaining or disruptive innovation. And then second is we look at the value of the innovation. Does it add value? Does it extract value or does it destroy value? And so the big tech barons can be disruptive when it doesn't adversely affect their existing ecosystems value chain. So for example, Google can afford to be disruptive in health because it's not going to affect necessarily its behavioral advertising ecosystem. Same thing with Apple. It can be disruptive outside of its value chain, but within its value chain, it tends to engage in sustaining innovation. And one of the critiques is that Apple's um, App Store for example, has engaged in largely sustaining innovation, and it hasn't been that innovative. But, but, let, let me pick you up on this, because this is a... Firstly, you say your, your position is nuanced. There's nothing nuanced about the title, how big tech barons smash innovation. It doesn't say how big tech, big, big tech barons sometimes smash or um, occasionally smash. You're saying that big tech barons smash innovation. So you, you do seem to be suggesting that 
that that big tech is by definition bad for innovation. But coming back to Apple and the App Store, I, I take your point about Apple dominating its own app platform. But surely the the Apple App Store and the Apple um, app ecosystem has enabled a remarkable amount of innovation of 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 tech people of tech companies of startups offering their apps on this increasingly ubiquitous platform is that wrong yes and and going back to they smash innovation because they smash what we call the tech pirates those that engage, that are truly the disruptors, that disrupt the value chain. And what they do then is those entities that can potentially undermine their value chain, they marginalize in multiple ways that they have the tools that they have at their possession. So your point is, does Apple promote innovation? To a certain extent, it can lower some of the costs for app developers because they can rely on Apple for some of the infrastructure. But on the other hand, they're not beneficent monopolists. They extract, for example, Apple extracts a hefty 30% app tech tax. And in addition to that, it also stifles innovations that are a potential threat to its value chain. So it doesn't allow other inline payment systems within its um, app store. And it can also copy products and basically rip them off and use their products and promote their products instead of alternatives. And that can have a chilling impact. And Amazon does the same, of course, in their store. But Amazon also resells many products. And some of the products that Amazon resells do challenge and perhaps even compete effectively with their own products, don't they? To a certain extent, but you're competing, the third parties compete with one hand behind their back. I mean, they have to pay their own tax to Amazon, which can be in excess of 30%. Maurice, doesn't this go without saying that if that 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 it's inevitable and unavoidable that and, and, and perhaps we can get into regulation, particularly in Europe, but it's inevitable and unavoidable that that Google or Apple or Amazon would use their platforms for their own benefit because that's what they are. They're for-profit companies which are naturally um, designed and dedicated to to providing profit to to their shareholders. Right. There's no dispute there. I mean, the fact that it's inevitable doesn't mean that it's desirable. And ordinarily, we have laws in place to ensure that the big tech barons' incentives and interests are aligned with our interests. And we will get to antitrust stuff. I, w- I want to get to that. But, but I, I want to come back to the P word you brought up, Maurice, piracy, piracy or pirates. You say that the big platforms crush pirates, but didn't they all begin as pirates? Um, trip. Mikkel, for example, talks about Apple in the after Steve. But when Steve went back to Apple and was revolutionizing the company, he even flew a, a pirate flag from one of the buildings that he took over to essentially disrupt and blow up his own company. So um, could you give me some example of pirates 
And, and I think we have to be careful with that word because I'm not sure how many people actually like pirates. Um, but, but pirates that these big tech barons have smashed, which is a bad thing. Sure. So, I mean, you're right that one, and we talk in the book about how Apple began as a pirate. And Clay Christensen also talked about that, about how disruptive companies eventually be, start converting to sustaining innovation. And it makes perfect sense. And it's perfectly yeah, rational. Yeah, Christensen calls it the innovator's dilemma. They innovate and then they have to protect what they've innovated. Yeah, and, and, and from the standpoint of the company, it's rational and it's desirable. They're giving customers what they want. They're innovating in value that the customers already desire, the existing customers. And so the tech, um, the disruptors are ones who are seeking a niche not to necessarily cater to the existing um, uh, customers. And with respect to the tech pirates that, that we discussed, one example was uh, Disconnect, a privacy app. And Disconnect offered, it was interesting that Disconnect offered a app that helps users prevent to be tracked. And they then um, started their own firm and what happened then was they were kicked out of uh, Google's um, App Store. And when we spoke with one of the, um, when we spoke with the CEO of Disconnect, he told us the crippling effect that this had. And it was interesting why he was kicked out. And it, it was really because he was offering users greater privacy that was a threat to the value chain of Google. Yeah, I take that point in a way, um, Maurice. We've done many shows on privacy and how, uh, in the words of one lawyer, Ari Ezra Waldman, we had on the show, uh, Big Tech's existential threat to privacy. But again, going back to, say, Apple, Apple and Facebook and Google have very different models when it comes to privacy and data. Apple has actually gone to war with Facebook uh, on this and seems to be winning. So. I don't know the details of the particular company you talk about, but I would presume that the Apple platform would be more, would be more, would be friendlier or, or at least less hostile to apps that protect users' privacy because they have a different business model. Uh, again, that's not necessarily the case. So I actually have another book out, uh, Breaking Away, How to Regain Control Over Our Data Privacy and Autonomy. And I look at the collision between competition and privacy and the book discusses Apple. And the common perception is that Apple has a different business model, a different value chain, and it's more aligned with our privacy interests, but it's not actually the case. It benefits indirectly from the behavioral advertising business model. And that one way it benefits is from it's um, agreement with uh, Google uh, to uh, have uh, Google as the default, not only on Safari, but also on Siri. And it's not just the payment to be the default. It's actually aligns incentives because the more revenue that Google advertising, behavioral advertising revenue that Google captures uh, on Apple, the more um, revenue that Apple receives. And also what, what we've been told by industry participants is that 
Apple also benefits indirectly through its app store that it knew that many of the apps relied on behavioral advertising. Many of them were extracting data in order to accurately assess and manipulate behavior. And it really didn't crack down on it because it wanted to grow its um, app store in order to, to compete against uh, Google. Some people listen to this, um, Maurice, and thinking, well, just let's just leave it to the market. The market creates and then it destroys. We did a show two weeks ago with my old friend David Kirkpatrick, perhaps the world's leading observer of Facebook. He wrote The Facebook Effect. He's, he knows Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. He's known them over the years. He's turned from a, a friend, a cheerleader of Facebook, into one of their, one of their most acute critics. We talked about the what we called the tragedy to farce of Facebook, about how Facebook now is in real free fall in the market. Uh, why not just leave it to the market? Facebook's in crisis. It's no longer really, I mean, arguably, it's not in the big five. It, it might not even be a big tech baron anymore. Why not leave it to the market? Because just as the market creates the barons, they also it also destroys them. Right. I mean, there's... It's, it's wrong to rely on market forces for two reasons. First is the nature of the digital markets. And these include network effects, extreme economies of scale, the importance of big data, and the amount of data that's collected by these um, companies, and the tipping effects that happen as a result. So every competition official that has studied these markets have come to the same conclusion, that they're not as contestable once one company has achieved the scale that these um, uh, dataopolis have, have achieved. So that's number one. The second point is that when it comes to data and privacy, relying on market forces is not going to work for multiple reasons. That the information, that individuals are at so many disadvantages when it comes to um, being able to control their data, that relying on market forces here won't necessarily correct it, particularly when the incentives are misaligned. You're going to have competition, but not necessarily the competition to protect you. So, uh, I mean, as a case in point, there are thousands of trackers on the internet today. And if Google, Facebook, and and, and um, Amazon were broken up, there would be many more companies that would seek to take their place. So you're going to then have a TikTok, but a TikTok is not necessarily going to protect your privacy or provide, you know, look out for your interests any more than Facebook has. So you might have more competition, but not necessarily the competition that benefits you. You'll have more data collected about you, but not necessarily for you. Well, we're talking with Maurice uh, Stuckey, the co-author of How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation. We're going to take a short break now, uh, uh, Maurice. Afterwards, uh, after the break, I want to talk about how we can strike back. You've painted a rather grim picture of the destructive, reactionary nature of big tech. So how are we going to move forward? How are we going to change the world? Uh, of big tech. Uh, we'll deal with that after the break with Maurice Stuckey. Back in 60 seconds, everybody. 
Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with uh, Maurice uh, Stuckey, the co-author of How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation. First half, we he laid out the argument against big tech. He suggested that the market itself probably or just leaving leaving the market to sort this thing out is 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 not effective, that if you replace Facebook with TikTok, for example, we're no better off. So, uh, Maurice, uh, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the nation piece about um, not boycotting Amazon, hit them where it really hurts. How can we hit these big platforms where it really hurts? How can we hurt them? How can we fight back? Well, I don't think we want to hurt them because we want them to generate innovation that creates value. And they can contribute to, to that regard as well. So what we want to do basically is align incentives. Um, and there are several ways uh, to do this. So first is you have to align, make sure that competition, privacy, and consumer protection is properly aligned. And the laws and those three spheres are working together to get us competition that actually helps us, not competition that fuels a race to the bottom. That's number one. And then second, in order to promote innovation, again, there's not a single bullet. It's not like you can just press one policy lever and you'll get more innovation. Instead, what we argue in the book is you really got to ask three fundamental questions and you have to look at three fundamental principles. First, you have to look at um, value. And you have to consider the type of innovation and whether or not it creates, destroys, or extracts value. And the assumption is, well, if there's a positive price for it, of course it must create value. But we could see lots of innovation, innovation that, for example, could help someone stalk you better, 
it might create value for the stalker, but it's not going to create value for society. The second then is incentives and asking who's designing the ecosystem, who's influencing these innovation paths, what's the value chain, and what are the incentives that it fosters. And when you look at behavioral advertising, I mean, the common mantra is that we are the product. And behavioral advertising will never correct itself because one, a few firms capture most of the profits, most of the value from that value chain. And then second, a firm can't unilaterally decide to opt out of behavioral advertising. So like web publishers can't unilaterally decide to opt out without paying a hefty price. Well, they can. They can put up paywalls and, and, and argue that we're not going to make our money through advertising. We're going to do it through subscription, which many of them have, which seems to be a much more effective business model. It, it is to a certain extent, but it isn't when you're looking at at many uh, web publishers. Most of them rely on behavioral advertising and are within the, um, that's why many of them have so many trackers on them, precisely because that's their how to maximize their revenues. Very few rely on subscription or uh, contextual advertising. Okay, so let's talk about behavioral advertising. You suggest that this is a, a key area. Are you in favor of uh, the kind of aggressive regulation of this sector that uh, Margaret Vestager in Europe is is pioneering. Is that a model or is that itself problematic? Well, we talk about it in our book that it's definitely moving the needle in the right direction, but it's not necessarily going to cure the problem here. And we talk about duck hunting. And what the thing about duck hunting is you have to shoot where the duck is going, not where the duck is. And a lot of the Digital Markets Act relates to past practices by these big tech barons. And they may not necessarily need to rely on those same practices moving forward. Um, the other thing is, is that the DMA and a lot of the regulations don't really address behavioral advertising. Um, they don't curb it. They're, the DMA has a provision in it that can allow users not to have their data aggregated across platforms, but it doesn't fundamentally affect the underlying value chain. And until you correct those incentives, you're not going to really address the problem. You're still going to have then for how that do you I don't understand how so so regulation isn't the fix. Um, the market isn't the fix. Give me how how you would and I'm using your words, how would you correct correct the incentives in behavioral advertising business online? How would that actually work? Who would do it and how would it be realized? Sure. So what would you what you would need is to have a mechanism either where consumers would have to opt into behavioral advertising or you just ban it outright. And that would be a regulation would work. So you could just ban it and which is something that the Europeans seem to be moving towards in a way, perhaps. Right, exactly. And until you, that would be a way that, but what I'm saying is when I'm saying regulations is the current regulations don't address it. But so Google, if, if Google was on the call and we had one of their smart lawyers, they would say, well, we already have that. We give our users lots of opportunities to opt out of this behavioral advertising ecosystem. Now, maybe they'd be exaggerating, but tech savvy people can opt out and continue to use these platforms. 
Really? I mean, I, I was at a conference last week and I spoke with someone from DuckDuckGo. How many people use DuckDuckGo? Even in go well, to private. Not the point. That's not the point of my my question. Uh, I mean, we could use. That's not my that's not my argument. My argument is that if you if you understand the Google platform or the Google ecosystem, you can you can use uh, their platform to at least counter some of the more troubling aspects of the behavioral advertising system. That's what they would say. I've talked to many Google lawyers over the years. Is that wrong? Right. Yes, it is. I mean, it's wrong first as an empirical matter because like the ACCC has brought a lawsuit against Google saying that it gave users the illusion of control over their geolocation data when that wasn't the case. So is this what we should want, Maurice? We, we, we should want a simple interface on the big platforms, Google, Amazon, um, uh, Apple, which are all advertising companies that would enable people to opt out. Is that the fix? Well, I mean, I think it's closer to the fix, but Andrew, when billions of dollars are standing between you and getting a consumer to opt into something, you can imagine that they're going to, you know, push. And so there's this whole concern now about dark patterns that you can, through the way that you can frame issues, the way that you design the path is you can get consumers to manipulate their behavior. Now, it's not always successful. I mean, an interesting data point is that I believe over 80% of Apple users have opted not to be tracked. But when there's so much money at stake and it's, it's, it's yes, you can um, give users the ability to opt out. There is going to be then a lot of incentive for them to prevent users from doing that. Yeah, exactly and that's that. given because these companies, as, as we both acknowledge, they're pursuing their own interest. Is the Fix Them Web 3 a new kind of architecture, um, a new way of organizing or disorganizing companies and business? Uh, well, because your, 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 your subtitle is How to Strike Back. But you're not you you're even acknowledging that that every way of striking back is either ineffective or short sighted. Well, no, I don't think it's the current methods are better than the, the, the current proposals are better than the existing antitrust tools that exist today. So we're moving closer to solving the problem. But the current tools will not solve the problem. So how do we strike back, Maurice? Tell me effectively in, an in your ideal world, how do we strike back against big tech barons so that they stop smashing innovation? Sure. So one thing is you've got to correct incentives. And we talked about that at length. Another thing is you look at... you can at explain that. How do you do that? Well, I re <laughs> well maybe that's my, my mistake. So one way is to look at the value chain of the underlying business model. And if it's behavioral advertising, to either prevent behavioral advertising or require- What does that mean, stuff. prevent it? You mean ban it? But yeah. then you're going back to regulation and you know that's not gonna happen in America. Well, I mean, I'm not one to make such absolute statements. Um, I think, why not? It's easier to change a business model than it is to change the internet. 
And there's so, nothing so to say. So in favor of regulators. So, so, so you, and, and you're the one who focuses on this behavioral advertising sector, which I think you're right too. It's a very problematic area. You'd be in favor of banning that? That's the Absolutely. fix? Well, no, that is part of the fix. So one thing is, is that there's not one single bullet to solve the problem. Anyone who tells comes onto your show and says there's a silver bullet is is diluted. There isn't one policy mechanism that will fix it. You will need to have a complement of policy tools. One of them has to then, in, rather than just saying, oh, antitrust, we're going to ban killer mergers, killer acquisitions. That can help address some of the problem, but it's not going to solve the problem. It's something that's necessary, but not sufficient. So what you're going to need then is an arsenal of tools. And some of the tools have already been proposed. They're going to help, but they're not going to be sufficient. You need to go further in terms of aligning privacy and competition policy. We already talked about that. And we also talked about not only regulation in terms of setting the boundaries of what the big tech barons can or can't do, but also optimization policies of ways to promote innovation. Another thing that we haven't talked about that it's important is the assumption that we just leave it to market forces for innovation. That's not necessarily always going to work, particularly when it's like for public goods, where a lot of the benefits of the innovation, such as basic research, is externalized and can't be captured by the uh, firms themselves. Under traditional economic models, that innovation isn't provided. So for like, Mariana Mazzucato, she pointed out that your typical phone here has most of the innovations were the result of government funding. It's the basic research. And that can also help promote innovation. We've kind of lost track of that in terms of how much we're supporting in just basic research. And then the other thing that we point well, out in the book. Just to come back to this one. The Mazuchatu, um, she's been on the show. Her argument, which is a, it's a fair argument, is that the Googles and the Apples are free riding on um, infrastructure that was created by the government, by public funds. Should they be paying higher taxes then? Is that the fix? No, I think what we should have is more basic, you know, support of basic research. Because that, in fact, what we identify in our book is diversity incentives, and the last would be um, uh, um, value. And in terms of diversity, how do you promote diversity? Well, the government can't predict which tech pirate will win. But what it can do is in funding basic research can help lower the cost then for innovation by these tech pirates. And that's something there's like positive spillover effects as a result of it. And the other thing that we point out, and this is something I haven't, I mean, we hadn't really heard of before. And it for us was really interesting. I'm interested in your take on it is the assumption is that you invest in firms for innovation. But uh, Jeffrey West wrote this book, Scale. What he pointed out was that Innovation scales sublinearly with firms, but scales superlinearly with cities. Actually, you get more bang for your buck as cities increase in size in terms of innovation. 
And we had, I mean, that seems foreign. I mean, I've been in competition now for over 25 years. I never really heard about innovate, you know, investing in cities to promote innovation. It was always how can we promote, you know, promote innovation by investing or giving incentives to firms. But that seems another area that hasn't really been tapped. It's an interesting argument. We've done a number of shows on cities. We did the show with Ben Wilson uh, on the invention of the city. He describes it as humankind's greatest um, innovation. Um, And we did uh, shows with Matthew Kahn, a a Los Angeles-based economist, about how technology can save our cities. Uh, Two of the leading experts on cities also, Edward Glazer, uh, and David Cutler, who has been on the show to talk about survival of the city. But my concern when it comes to cities is that they tend to be, if not left-wing bastions, certainly bastions of progressivism. Uh, Elon Musk recently said that uh, AS Twitter's HQ in San Francisco creates a strong left-wing bias, which may be true. Um Aren't cities themselves um, politically biased? And if you invested massively in cities, which tend to be, as I said, um, uh, centers of progressive power, it's only going to annoy the rest of Americans. You're talking to me from Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm not sure if you consider that a city, but I'm sure there are many people in Tennessee who wouldn't be particularly happy if the government poured billions or trillions of dollars into San Francisco and New York? Well, no, no one says that you have to invest in particular cities. What our argument is, is that, and this goes back, you know, before Jeffrey West uh, to Michael Porter, and you look at regional industry clusters. And ordinarily, I mean, you might think of competition as zero sum, right? That one firm benefits, another firm loses. But what Porter pointed out is that with these regional innovation clusters, you can actually have positive sum competition, that as firms come to a region, the more firms that are there competing, that has positive effects on other firms. It might help, for example, with the skilled labor force. It might help with the universities um, developing majors to provide um, the workers for, for that particular industry. But our point is, is it's much more fundamental and putting aside politics. It's like when a city's population doubles, let's say 100%, the level of innovation increases 1.15 times. And that happens then, so you go from 2 million to 4 million, you're going to get more innovation as a result. And I I take this point in a way, but I'm talking to you, um, Maurice, from San Francisco, which is the most dystopian place probably on earth in terms of its inequality, its homelessness, the price of its real estate. And the new San Francisco is being created by innovative tech. So why, why should any other urban center be any different from San Francisco? Well, it, because there are other things that also scale uh, super linearly as well, like crime, for example. Um, but the problem with San Francisco is not crime. The problem is inequality and the disappearance of public space, which is a consequence of the remarkable innovation in some ways of the tech companies. So I don't know why it would be different anywhere else. Well, I mean, one thing that is interesting is that while all cities follow this power law, 
some of them outperform other similarly situated cities. So there are like examples like Burlington, Vermont, relative to its size, it's producing more patents per its population than other cities. And like some other cities like New York, Los Angeles, and Shreveport, Louisiana, underperform relative to its size. So we don't have an answer to that, but that's an area that might be worthwhile. So San Francisco may not be the model that it might, as its population increased, it might be more innovative, but is it more innovative relative to other cities of its size? That, that's really the question, and by how much? Well, that's interesting stuff. He certainly uh, touched the nerve. Uh, Ariel, um, sorry, Maurice uh, Stuckey is the co-author of How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation and How to Strike Back. It's out next month. Actually, his co-author, Ariel Ezrachi, will be on the show next month to launch the book in late June. Um, uh, Maurice, thank you so much for coming on the show to, to talk about the ideas in the book. Uh, what else are you reading these days? What else is on your bedside table? Yeah, I, I, thanks for the heads up. I've got two of them and I'll show them. First is The Practice of Groundedness. I don't know if you've uh, read this. Um, no, I haven't. I, it's an interesting title. Yeah, it's by Brad Stolberg. And it talks about the heroic individualism and how we are built on it. And in fact, that leads us astray. So when he looks at his practice of groundedness, he looks at presence. And some of the themes in his book actually relate to our conversation, like how with big tech, we're constantly distracted and how that actually undermines our well-being and our social connectedness. And what does it mean to be grounded and how does that actually help with our well-being? So he looks at a lot of the, the, the recent studies and he comes up with several principles for us uh, to follow. So that would be one that I highly recommend. It was uh, the Wall Street Journal always in its uh, Saturday, Sunday mm. uh, section. They they had an article on it and it, and it, uh, it attracted you have to my... get the author on the show. It sounds like a very interesting book. Yeah, I think you would. Um, he What happened was he uh, had a nervous breakdown. And one of the things that he pointed out is that people who, for example, portray strength, and show you know, how, how important they are. It actually reflects weakness. And when you actually can show weakness and what you don't know, it actually gives you empathy and makes you look better in terms of your audience. But it also helps your mental well-being um, to recognize that you, know, you don't have always all the answers. And some of the things that we've been told like in order to promote our happiness, the heroic individualistic struggle can actually make us more miserable. And then the other one that I'm reading is um, here, this one, The Great Reversal, How America Gave Up on Free Markets, Thomas Philippon from mm. NYU. You might have had him on. on no, that sounds like an interesting one. It's very much, I, I think, uh, in accordance with your thesis about the smashing of innovation. Yeah, what he points out is that <laughs> I remember when I was at several years ago, I was at this uh, University of Chicago conference and this person said, you know, you Americans, you think you're, you know, your markets are so great. You think it's so competitive, you, but it really sucks. Like you're paying much more for telecom than in France. You have more regulation than some of the European countries. And in fact, 
it, your markets are often less contestable. You're paying a lot more as a result of market power. There's less innovation than in Europe. And you're more, your system is more broken because of the corrupting influence of lobbyists. So it's a dysfunctionality that America used to be the leader in the competition ideal, and we kind of lost our way. And so he relies primarily on, you know, he's an economist, he relies a lot on um, his um, um, economic research that's sparked a great debate here in the United States. 